good podcast. Uh, just a little note here on what you're going to hear. Uh, for the first part of the interview, I don't know, maybe the first 20 minutes, the reverb on my microphone was on, so I sound like this while I'm talking uh, with Leah Payne. And then after a while, I figured out it was a reverb, and I shut it off. So if that's driving you crazy, my deepest apologies. But thank you for listening to the podcast, even when we get the audio spot on or when we have a little bit of work to do. Great conversation with Leah Payne about the power of contemporary Christian music and how it shaped a culture we live in today. So enjoy. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. Uh, Nice to be back with all of you. Uh, I'll tell you, it's been a while. We've been off for a week and a half as we were traveling about the country. So nice to see you all. Glad to have you back and really excited for you to meet and to talk with Leah Payne. She's a professor Hi. and an author. Hi, Leah. So, so good to see you. Uh, as we Thank often do, we like to talk about the weather. So how's the, uh, how's the weather in Portland, Oregon? Wow. Well, last week we had a huge ice storm. And so we had no school. Um, and if you're the parent of small children like I am, that was like, it was like basically another, like a spring break slash Christmas break. Um, so today is back to normal, gloomy winter Portland weather. Mm. So it's just raining and I'm, I'm very happy about that. How's the weather where you are? Oh, thank you. I am in Minneapolis and the weather today is going to be 38 degrees. If you can okay. imagine, uh, that's after a long run of uh, not good weather. And okay. uh, it's been wicked, wicked cold, like you know, 20 below. 20 below zero wind chills and just, just nonsense. That is unacceptable coldness in yeah, my mind. So, so 38 <laughs> degrees feels just wonderful. And Jim is telling us that, uh, of course, things are lovely in Ventura, California. So Jim, good. Oh yeah. Good Thanks a lot. So, sorry, about, <laughs> sorry about shouting that comment. That shouldn't be that big. Uh, all right. Well, Leah, Lea, so, so glad to, uh, so, so glad to have you. And I feel an echo in my ears and I don't know where it's coming from. Sometimes when we go away from our setup here, it just punishes us when we come back. So <laughs> hope, hope it sounds okay. And you're right. It sounds um, great. Leah, this, this book that you've written called, uh, God gave rock and roll to you. Um, and the history of contemporary Christian music, uh, seems like a really important one and kind of a oh, peculiar topic in some ways, right? A lot of people <laughs> yes. wouldn't be like, so contemporary Christian music has something to do with the cultural situation in the United States currently. Um, so thank you for the book and thank, uh, you. thank you for the earworm that now for the last two days has been in my sorry. head. Singing, uh, <laughs> sorry, God, not sorry. God, God gave rock and roll to you. All right. So, so tell us about the, the book and then I want to ask you about your teaching at Portland Seminary and some of the rest of this, but uh, sure. What got, what got you into writing this book? Well, um, you know, I, I I think your first comment that wow, this seems like kind of a weird lens for looking at American culture and the culture of evangelicalism in in particular. You're not the first person to say that. The first time I pitched um, this this book to a scholarly editor, I said I want to look at how contemporary Christian music shaped the landscape of predominantly but not exclusively white evangelicalism and i want to look at how it what um the industry played an active role in creating the theology and politic of the the um evangelical world so when i pitched it 
Um, I was all excited, you know, um, and and the editor said, uh, yeah, I don't get it. I don't get what's powerful about that. Um, but I knew that that um, contemporary Christian music, a.k.a. CCM, uh, for people who were raised in evangelical circles, it was um, first off ubiquitous. There was almost no activity that did not include this music and that it was extremely formative. Um, in, in almost every possible way. And so fortunately, I found an editor who um, was willing to work with me on it. And a few years later, here we are. And, and so that's kind of the, the, the yeah. short end, which is, yeah, I know it, it doesn't seem like it may be from the outside um, and sometimes from the inside, because I think we dismiss things that are entertaining as being like less important. Mm -hmm. But if our current you know, political landscape has shown us anything. It's that in entertainment is quite powerful and can be very formative in people's lives. So the book is about how music shapes people and how this industry and kind of the broader evangelical media landscape has shaped our shared public life over time. Now, I apologize. I haven't yet haven't yet read, read the book, but I, no I'm problem. assuming that part of it is not only how it shapes politics, but how important the contemporary Christian music movement was just in Christianity inside of it. Because those of us who are Absolutely. in that world, like we've all known that music carries more power than, than preaching, more power than writing, more power than typical theology. Uh, if you can sing it, you tend to follow it. Uh, we've, we've known that for a very long time. I think your insights, yes. though, from what I've seen in the book is... Hey, and that didn't stay inside of that context. It actually spread, spread yes. broadly. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, um, the book starts with in the early 20th century with one of the biggest uh, political projects of the early 20th century was the temperance movement, which led to the banning of the sale of uh, to prohibition uh, mm -hmm. of alcohol, and that um, the. The, a lot of the women in particular who led the temperance movement recognized if you can get people singing about this, you can move them. Um, and so the, actually the first chapter of the book is called The Magic Power of Song, which is a quote from a, a temperance movement figure who noted that you could reform all and about the, the salvation that was found in sobriety. So that that idea um, is certainly nothing new. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, you can you can really see. And I think for for people who were raised in um, the predominantly white evangelical world of the 70s, 80s and 90s, they saw an industry grow um, in profitability and in influence. And most right. most people who are familiar with it can testify to the fact that, yeah, it, it definitely um, shaped me as a person. Yeah. Well, yeah. look, in the, in the religious world, people are like Martin Luther did it with the hymns. Absolutely. Uh, the Wesleys in the, in the Wesleyan movement. It was, uh, it was all about music. Hymns of yeah. churches, I and mean, there's still churches that argue about hymns, you know, that they want them because they preserve the faith. So that's <laughs> yeah. for sure the case. All right, so let's talk about what the industry was, because that sure. is... That is true. That thing you said, where there was there wasn't an industry around rock music or folk music or kind of guitar drums music, being church music, that really came on the scene. Can you just give for people who 
Sure. Maybe feel like it's always been around or didn't recognize that that was a thing. Can you, can you describe yeah. that experience that some of us who are Christians in the, you know, for me, it was early 1980s for some in the seventies, kind of what that all meant. Sure. Was, sure. Yeah. You know, um, so I think in order to understand contemporary Christian music as an industry, um, a lot of people look at CCM as um, they start with rock. So they start with rock music and that and all of the tensions around rock. And then they they um, look at contemporary Christian music through that lens. Um, I want to look at it through the business end of things. Mm. So not necessarily the sounds of rock, but the business um, and businesses that were associated with revival, with Christian revival. So if you look at um, the businesses who created these, these really, um, really fascinating um, collections of songs, revival hymn books, um, you see the, the seeds of what becomes contemporary Christian music. So um, eventually these revival um, movements in the early 20th century, they create rock and roll. So rock music is actually, you know, there's a lot of conversation in the 1970s and 1980s about secular music um, and secular rock. Well, initially rock comes out of, of revival um, movements and in uh, black and, and white holiness and Pentecostal um, movements. And so contemporary Christian music um, is actually an inheritor of a much older, older tradition um, and a lot of the themes, and I would love to hear what your favorite CCM, you know, music was when, yeah. when you were coming of age. Um, cause a lot of those themes go way back. They go back actually, you know, about a hundred years, but who, who did you like to listen wow. to when you were growing well, up? Well, that's interesting. I saw that, uh, the squirrely prepper lifestyle, uh, person on YouTube, yeah. that, that Petro was a big deal. Um, oh yeah. Petro and, is huge. And yeah, it, it was, it was to me too. In fact, just a few months ago, um, a year ago, I got to meet one of the people who was in Petra and we've become friends and I stayed oh, in his house and stuff. So it was super fun. Wonderful. Like for nerdy, yeah. Kind of, you know, for someone like me, I got into Christianity when I was 16 and it really was music and kind of late Jesus movement stuff for me. I was a okay. teenager in the 1980s. So that, that kind of vibe. Um, but I was kind of more into the into real rock music. I mean, in my mind, uh, so a lot of the Christian rock, like for some people I knew Christian rock was like their chance to hear that kind of music and argue with their parents that it was okay or with their youth pastor. Right. Say that this was, this was okay. So they listened to, I don't know, Striper and all this other stuff. It's like, no, I just listened to Kiss. Like I don't need to listen to Striper. Um, now wait, but, I got to ask, did your parents, what did they say? Were they Christians? Yeah, like I, what I was your home I wasn't life? Ra I wasn't raised religiously. So ah. yeah, they didn't. <laughs> they, they were more worried that I be, had become Christian. <laughs> they were really okay. worried about that. Like, <laughs> oh boy, our son has drifted into a you know a cult, of some kind. So they, they were worried about the, the Christianized version of me, not the uh, not the secularized version. But, <laughs> but I was a youth pastor and stuff, so I know how serious this stuff was. And, and I'll say, Leah, there was also a subtext. I feel like it was more in the early 1980s among the fundamentalist Christians that I knew that were opposed to rock music because of the one, four beat thing that came from African culture. And to hear you say that rock music was a part of black Pentecostal gospel world. Mm -hmm. Like, and then I think there was a racist piece to all of this that uh, I didn't know at the time, but now I look back and I'm like, Oh, that's what was, that's what was going on. 
yeah so some of some of that kind of just talk about drums and, and but i was just absolutely like, that seems utterly ridiculous to me that you wouldn't play music like to me rock music was just music and folk music and you know 70s guitar driven music was just music Yes, um, and I, I'm certainly not the first historian to point this out, but in the early days of a, a lot of the opposition to rock music, in fact, there's a really a great um, scholar named Randall Stevens who has written um, about how um, early responses to rock and roll um, and in white circles, oftentimes anti-rock rhetoric was like a proxy conversation about civil rights and um, especially around issues like in the Jim Crow South and stuff like that. So yes, race and racism um, are a huge part of that conversation. And then for Pentecostals, um, black and white Pentecostals in the 1950s um, were oftentimes horrified to find that the types of music that were in their minds meant to be um, in in service of God, um, were being used for things that teenagers like sex and you know dancing and cars and, and so yeah so for many of them it was just um, I I have I, I've included a lot of um, conversation a, a lot of the stuff that you just mentioned about um, the really racist um, overtones of conversation about rock but also from um, Pentecostal communities that they are just horrified that their music has been used in such a, um, they, they see it as a downgrade because they want to be talking about God. Um, and one of the funniest um, in, incidents of it is um, Jerry Lee Lewis, his Great Balls of Fire. Mm -hmm. um, that is actually, you know, in, in certain Southern Pentecostal circles that was a reference to the holy spirit you know descending on you um oh. like fire if you think about it, it kind of makes sense and then yeah. um can you imagine how scandalous it would be to have that phrase all of a sudden be used as a very very thinly veiled um reference to sex so i, I mean it's hard to overstate how scandalous that was um but eventually um uh those christian communities many of them found that they couldn't resist it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and they went, and they went, went all in and, and went for mm -hmm. it. Um, okay, I want to talk about the industry, but what, what's your story sure. with this? Like, what, where were you raised in the Christian spectrum, and what sure. years were you in? Were you into contemporary Christian music as a <laughs> sort of? You know, um, I, I, I was raised in um, a pastor's household. I am a West Coast Pentecostal pastor's daughter. And my parents were um, Bible college students in the 1970s in San Jose, California. So that's right in right in there um, during kind of the, the, the end okay. uh, of the Jesus movement. Um, and so I was raised with all of the, my parents love Jesus music. My first concert was a Chuck Gerard concert. Um, so some of some people viewing may remember Chuck Gerard. But um, so I was I was raised in church with that music. Now, my dad is a real music fan, and he did not like contemporary Christian music. So unlike many of my peers, um, in you know, when many of my peers were really enveloped in the world of contemporary Christian music in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, 
my dad didn't like it, so he didn't want it in our home. So a lot of people who were my peers were raised with contemporary Christian music as a substitute form yeah. of of entertainment. And um, so I was and then wasn't um, in the world. But because I was a charismatic, I mean, you know, everybody knew who Carmen was, everybody oh, yeah. knew. Um, so of course, I was uh, totally aware of, of the world. But um, but you were listening so yes to just no. regular music, just like regular TV music and or I, radio music and all that? I was the I was a very nerdy person. People sometimes tell me about how they liked contemporary Christian music and they they act a little bit embarrassed of it, which is sweet. But um, I liked something even nerdier, which was Broadway music. Very few teens oh, okay. were. So gotcha. I was a big nerd. Gotcha. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so just a yeah it was a different kind of nerd. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jim says in here that his style was uh, modern Gregorian chant. So uh, there's, there's, there are a lot I of I love it, Jim. I love it. Okay. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about this industry that was formed. You did a lot of interviews in the book mm -hmm. and you've tried to get inside and behind the curtain here of what was going on. Mm -hmm. Can you name some names? Because history, history is, is a history of people and people doing things, right? And mm -hmm. We tend to organize history, and I don't say this to a, you know, to a theological historian like yourself <laughs> anyway, but in the most positive terms, but when you're taught history or even look it up or something, it tends to move, it tends to be structured by events, what mm. happened, and behind those events are people, and people do things. They make rules, they make laws, they do actions, and those are the things that then shape, shape our world. You seem in the book to get into the people, like figuring out, hey, who are the people <laughs> and sure. what did they do and what were they up to and what were their motivations? Is it, is, do I have that right? And if so, what oh, were yes. some of the highlights of the people? Sure. Um, well, I think a couple of people who um, I would I would want to mention first would be the Bensons, uh, the Benson family. So if you are familiar with Benson Records, um, so, uh, two of the the founders of Benson Records, John and Ava Green Benson, um, they were in a, they, they went to an open air revival meeting in 1897 in an abandoned lot in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was, it was led by this pretty radical holiness preacher and their lives were changed and they responded by creating a printing press um, or a, a publication uh, company that um, they event, you know, early on they had a newsletter and sermons and stuff like that. But right away, the music was the thing that sold um, mm -hmm. the most. So the Benson family um, created what would become one of the largest and most influential businesses in contemporary Christian music and their children and future generations carried it on until eventually it was a record company. Um, but the Bensons, from, from the Bensons, they're important because what you get from that are um, you, you see that there are holiness people. And if you don't know what holiness people are, there are people in the early 20th century who, um, late 19th, early 20th century, um, who uh, have this pretty radical view of um, the, the Christian life and the role of the Holy Spirit to make someone entirely holy. Um, and they are well known for certain codes for living. So not drinking, not dancing, um, not gambling. Um, and then, um, you know, Bible reading and, and things like that. Um, so they were part of a movement that eventually became the Nazarene 
okay. church. Yeah. So, um, and incidentally, um, they, they, um, you know, what, James Dobson, also a part of the Nazarene movement. So you start to see a group of people right. who right. are wanting to um, change the world uh, and make it more holy, make, make themselves and, and society more holy. And they see music as an opportunity to do that. So I think the Bensons, you have to know about um, the Bensons. I think you have to know about a guy named Gerald McCracken, who was a Baylor University graduate in the 1950s. Um, and he got a, a request from, um, he was a Baptist, if you know many Baylor graduates uh, from the 50s, most of them uh, were Baptist. He got a request from a Baptist youth group to create a, he, to go and preach about uh, Jesus and football, which is like the most Texan request I think I've ever Perfect. heard of in my life. Perfect, yeah. So um, instead of doing that though, he created a, a drama, a, he was a sportscaster. And so he created a, um, uh, a recording called The Game of Life that is a fictional football game between uh, that, that, um, a Christian plays on the game of life um, against the forces of evil, coached by the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, he created a record. He sent it to the youth group. It was hugely popular, caused a sensation, so successful. So many other youth pastors started asking for it that he created a record label that was based on the call station um, that he had created this fictional sports huh. game. And that call station was W-O-R-D word so he created oh word God. records um so from that That's you get word a records word records yeah so from that you get a baptist um with a uh a desire to keep youth group kids in youth group yep. right um so if you see those two people the i mean i'm just i'm not even into the 1960s but those right. those two figures um really you start to see the philosophy of contemporary christian music um and the the energy behind protecting young people and upholding certain conservative ideas and norms mm. um and so for people who were raised in contemporary christian music they often all of that stuff went without saying you know people were just like yeah that's just how how this is you as an older convert may have been like what are you guys you know like what's happening here i i don't know was that like for you totally. were you kind no. of like what <laughs> yeah it was like what what and yeah but it was like i don't know like they're when the when the guy from kansas went over and started singing in the christian music world it was like hey all right so it's kind of getting legitimate over there and you know, <laughs> Or when Amy Grant went the other way, it was like, okay, this is real. I don't know, like that kind of thing, yeah. just negotiating the Christian role. But you do bring yeah. up an interesting point that I noticed a lot in those days, and it's come back in a way that I'm super afraid of, actually, which is yeah. that holiness movement, how connected it is to what a lot of us now refer to as a Christian nationalism movement, mm. that the Christian nationalist idea is that America should be a holy country to fulfill the purposes of God. Not just mm. holiness so that the purposes of God could be fulfilled through a church, but so the purposes of God could be fulfilled through the nation. And that a lot of that holiness stuff and a lot of the current contemporary music people, because now worship music has become the kind of contemporary music style and didn't used to be worship music. I almost remember the summer in 1993 sure. when it happened, you know, when Maranatha music sort of became the thing everybody listened to. But anyway, 
that that Christian nationalist kind of holiness movement out of that. What was any of that mm. part of the thinking that that you were finding? Uh, yeah, you know, I I am usually pretty careful about how and where I use the phrase Christian nationalism because I just mm. want to make sure that I'm um, using it in a way that illuminates. Um, the the people yeah. so what i'll say is this is that in the one of the things that um if you look at holiness songbooks in the early 20th century mm -hmm. you will see a lot of patriotic songs yeah. you will see a lot of songs that are deeply concerned with the state of the nation and especially the state of the young um in yeah. in the nation so you will see um visions of nationalism that um you know it, in those days the big world events would have been like World War One, right? So you're not going to see the exact same conversation, but you're going to see a very um, a high priority. And and these are this is you know created in the segregated South. It is a very white dominated conversation, yep, yep. and it is glorifying um, a a very nostalgic view of the United States. Um, so you see that in the early days and that never goes away. The idea that, you know, that, that God has a special purpose. Now it depends on which groups, because I think a lot of the, the groups that people, um, apply the Christian nationalist label to now, I think those are kind of a later addition. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of those groups are, are very charismatic. And so the, and charismatics are sort of like a, it's hard, you know, are they the children of Pentecostals? Are they the cousins of Pentecostals? A lot of times they have the same, um, they adopt many similar practices. So they sort of get all put together a lot of times. Um, but those visions, I think a, a lot of those folks, they are charismatic. And this book looks at how charismatics have come to be the dominant strain in most evangelical yep. circles. And they did it, I think, through music. They did it exactly what you said in the 1990s. Um, those those charismatic communities, they they started. They had always been trading music back and forth across the world. This is a transnational movement, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. from the get go. And they their their style, the way they do church, um, you know, like the mega church model. Yep. Um, used to people used to have in their minds a Baptist in their minds when they thought of mega churches, but they should have a charismatic in their minds in terms totally. of if we look at how they're worshiping, you know. So um, I think that if you look at how um, the even even just the creation of the in our modern, you know, the, the way we use Christian nationalism now, of course, there's always been nationalism. There's always been Christian nationalists, um, but. Uh, the way we use it now, I think mm -hmm. a lot of those folks are people who have been fueled by this vision mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, of the nation that it's one thing you said it, it, it exactly right. It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to sing it because it's you're not just listening to someone. You are yeah. participating in it. So, yes, it's it's throughout <laughs> yeah. throughout. Yeah. yeah, it's coming from your heart and not your head. It's just true. It's why. Well, that's why I have a guitar hanging behind me. It's why we sing. It's the most human thing. And um, that, that, the okay, so, so the charismatic movement, 
of the Jesus movement of the late 60s and early 1970s is deeply connected to what's referred to as the contemporary Christian music mm-hmm. movement. Is that right? Yes, like that? absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that, was, that had a particular flavor to it, depending on where you were in the country, you know, sort of the New York Woodstock crowd versus the Southern California Calvary Chapel crowd. And right. Know, was, I think maybe it was in your book where I read this, uh, when I read some excerpts online from the book that, the Jesus movement was rather short, but um, f- but influential. Like it had a lot. Yes. Of, yeah, you want to yeah. say something about that and how yeah. music was the? Because I, for some reason, I remember the early days of like hippie kids, and man, I was one of them. Like I used to go to church and with flip flops on and shorts to the little <laughs> Baptist church on Sunday nights. Oh. <laughs> real music in the car. It, like it was just confusing to these poor church people. Right, just right. into that Jesus stuff, you know, as a teenager and felt alivening and, and felt it didn't feel at all restrictive. It was freeing to a lot of us. So anyway, it was a whole different kind of story than what a lot of people who grew up in churches where Christianity was used as a thing to cap your life or to bottle you up. For mm. new teenage converts, Christianity tend to feel like a freedom narrative from a life that felt sort of empty or was full of a lot of other struggles and pains. So really different perspectives. And I feel like that was some of what has never been reconciled inside the inside Christianity in the last 45 years or so. Yes, you're really right. And and one of the things that I I found fascinating was how charismatics, or I, I'll say this, how the Jesus movement um, was branded and um, essentially appropriated by conservative white evangelicals who were super smart to do that, (laughs) by the way. Um, So, so I like to think of the, the original generation of Jesus people as sort of like flappers. If you know anything about the early 20th century, my first book was about that. So flappers, they're those, you know, like with the little dresses and the jazzy jazz. So flappers were actually like a tiny part of the American public, but they loomed large in the imagination of Americans. Like they, when people think of the 1920s, they think flappers, well, there weren't that many of them. They were very kind of avant-garde. Anyway, so Jesus people, that is a, actually a really small group of people The the, the Jesus people who were former, um, like teen hippie converts to charismatic Christianity in, um, you're right, all over the country and kind of one of the big media hubs ended up being in Southern California. No coincidence, Southern California is a well-known media hub. Um, but those young people were actually um, not the majority of people who would go on to adopt Jesus people aesthetics. Like, um, you know, kind of the the aesthetics of the anti-authority kind of um, and also I would say the value for Jesus as a friend and intimacy with God, um, that that um, ethic um, became very quickly appropriated by conservative evangelical media makers. And I'm not the first person to say this at all, but there's a famous um gathering of of evangelical uh kids um called explo 72 which many people talk about as the the inciting incident that creates the category of contemporary christian music but it was um a well-known event if you know anything about that world um where uh billy graham and a number of other influential um evangelicals invited a bunch of young people 
who were essentially um, uh, the church kids um, to a gathering where they heard from Jesus people, um, Jesus music uh, people. So people like Larry Norman um, in second chapter of Acts, like those types of musicians um, were um, seen as really valuable partners in encouraging young people to adhere to um, conservative evangelical Christianity, it was very effective. So I think of like, you know, one time I heard if you had asked, if everyone who said they'd been to Woodstock descended on Woodstock, it'd be like, you know, 10 times. Of, and it's sort of like that. If everyone who said they were an actual Jesus person were, you know, like, that's no, but they like to remember themselves in that way. I think in, in large part, um, because they were iconic, right? Like right, these right. were just, and, and the songs that they wrote, um, unlike a lot of, there, there had been a lot of stops and starts that I document where conservative evangelical media makers were trying to come up with rock substitutes. So they kept trying different things and they weren't having very much success. And what Jesus music did was, um, it was music created by young people for young people. And those young people were being trained as Christians by um, a set of pastors who were pretty conservative, charismatic pastors, people like Chuck Smith and Jack Hayford and John Wimber. And that was um, for very smart evangelical media makers like Billy Graham. That was an entry point to it was like cracking a code because they had been really wrestling with rock and roll. They tried forbidding it. That did not work, right? Um, especially because you have like a generation of of teens, um, and you know the very first thing to if you want a teen not to do something, at least an American teen, is to tell them, yeah. you know, to do it. Um, so, so it was a, a tremendous opportunity, and then the floodgates just opened right. because all of a sudden there was this idea, like, oh my goodness, we could we could train young Christians up in the very form of media that we had thought would lead them to damnation, it could be the source of their salvation. Yeah. And it was just a free for all. It was like a boom in, in creating music um, that was made for that purpose. I'm sorry, I just talked so much. No, talk all, that's what you're on here for. Talk, talk as long as you want. Oh, I'm you not, I'm so not and, used to interviews. <laughs> oh, you just start talking and keep going. Um, okay. Okay, so, so one of the things that I think existed maybe in, at least by the by the 1990s, maybe the 1980s, were colleges, especially charismatic colleges, that had like music production majors in them. Yes, like, they yes. took this stuff so seriously that you could like go to college, and and people still can do this, but it's, I don't know for some reason it feels more legitimate now. Like the places you could go to music school was like Berkeley College of Music and. North Central Bible College, you know, where they would have have a music thing. So who did the whole system just sort of buy into this or were they thinking, hey, there's big money making opportunity here? How how was that all? That's a great question. Um, and so one of the things that I look at is how how contemporary Christian music was built on development networks that were church-based, but also dependent on this big web of evangelical mm. um, um, parachurch organizations and colleges and even coffee shops. And um, there was this vast network and Christian colleges, the, the um, 
Christian, many contemporary Christian music artists came up through Christian colleges. Um, so that was very popular. But what I hear in what you're saying um, is sort of the off the book schools, which that is super interesting. So places like Christ for the Nations um, or, or um, uh, Rama Bible College, these yeah. very, very right. charismatic um, uh, organizations, those places, I'm so glad you asked about that because those places created um, generations of contemporary worship leaders who, um, and by the way, they're all over the world because people sent people from all over the world to come to, to Christ for the Nations. Um, and so if you actually follow the music, you can follow the ideology as it goes all over the place. Um, and, and I think that's something that, um, if you're not taking the music seriously, then you miss it. Um, uh, and so a lot of people have been very surprised that there's a an international yeah. um, kind of back and forth with evangelical uh, folks or that there's um, political affinities between like the United States and Brazil or Guatemala or these mm -hmm. other places. Well, um, that would not, that's not surprising to anybody who knows about those media relationships. Um, and by the way, these are like close friends and family friends, you know, it's not just the fact that they like the music, it's that they know and they trust each other. Um, and many of them share that common experience right. of exactly what you said, those charismatic um, they, music schools. They came into the youth retreat or came into something at their church, stayed with the family. Like that's the thing that people often miss in mm -hmm. any movement. Yes. So you take Christ, conservative Christian movements or political movements or whatever. It's people who know each other and spend time with each other in not just formal spaces, right? It's like, it's super easy. And people do a lot of this to tell the stories of any movement by, you know, mm -hmm. like the big conferences, right? So I don't know, you mentioned Expo 72, and then there was some other gathering in, in Washington, DC. And like you, you could stack yes. and then a music festival that starts. And you can stack together a dozen events over a dozen years and sort of see who ran them, where did the money come from? But it was yes. the 364 days in between those day, those those events when this whole network is being formed and shaped and and developed. People moving around, marrying each other's you know, kids, marrying and bands, and just all of that. You. Yes, you know, my friend Erica Ramirez and I, we wrote an article um, in Religion News Service about an event that the Trump administration held where they invited a bunch of worship leaders and contemporary mm -hmm. Christian music uh, people into the White House. And there were people like Michael Tate and Carrie Job, yep. And um, we, it didn't get as much attention as I thought it should. We were trying to draw attention to it because um, we we were saying, listen, Carrie Job is not a household name, maybe in, you know, like the kind of circles where political pundits are going back and forth about, you know, yeah. this current election cycle. But she is in a charismatic uh, church service. And she had just had one, one of the biggest hits, um, uh, one of the biggest pandemic hits. She'd been in almost everybody's home with this song called The Blessing. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is a big deal when she is up at, when she's on all of her social media platforms vouching for the trump administration and that's something that i think um 
and I've I've asked around, and I I'm not sure who the architect of that is um, in in the the Trump administration, but someone, probably more than one person, understands how those those networks work and yep. was very diligent about developing those relationships. Yeah, and and certainly true with the with the Trump administration, and um, I, you know I try to work in this intersection of evangelical faith and politics. And maybe you know, do you know who it is? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I do. But but one side of the equation, Republicans have a very sophisticated understanding of those networks. The other yes. side of the equation, the other big political party, the Democrats, not only have no clue, they're totally uninterested. Like they they could not care any less, right? They're just like, oh my gosh, those people, Um, which is only a problem because they represent so many people, that contemporary Christian movement and the Christian subculture that really, I mean, I think you're one of the unique voices pointing out that this is connected to songs and musicians, not just individual pastors or institutions. And that Mm. that is what a lot of us have always recognized. Um, and your scholarly piece, by the way, an Oxford Press piece, we should say. Oh, thanks. Right? <laughs> you know, you're not just, you didn't just, you know, publish a Baker book. Self-published. You went, yeah. uh, you went to Oxford, no, Oxford I Press. love Baker. Baker yeah, does do great too. stuff. They published me. I've, I've, they published me. Uh, yeah, all for them. Uh, but Oxford Press, like this is a, uh, right. So like you're, you're making a statement at a level of scholarship, not just you know, um, I, no one would think you would write a book that's basically extended blog posts like some of us have spent a career writing. Oh, brother. Um, you, you've written books of much more, much more consequence. Um, to, to, to name this and to point this out that look, that the, the experience of individual Christians in America is not through pastors or institutions right. or even churches. It really comes through like, groups and music and uh, honestly I know we're not talking about this but these little devotionals that people read hundred percent it's the drip 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 stuff it's not it's not Greg Locke yelling at people from some church in Tennessee like that is just not how it how it goes yes you know I appreciate you saying that in part because um I know a lot of pastors and I know many of them are um baffled a little and exhausted by how little their voice influences their congregation. Um, and there are so many reasons for that. Um, but but your, I, I appreciate how you pointed out the little things, the drip, drip, drip of the greater media landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, it, for most of its history, contemporary Christian music was distributed through Christian bookstores, which were it's hard to overstate, you know, like young people, if you don't know what a Christian bookstore is at the time uh, for a while, they were the the cultural hub of, yeah. of evangelicalism. Um, and that's where people were buying all these things at the same time. So yep. um, the primary buyers of, of contemporary Christian music, or at least the people who the industry um, imagine themselves marketing to, and they did it really well. So I think they were probably right. Um, what yeah, well, they were Christian bookstore moms. So moms who were concerned about their children and the music they they were listening to mm-hmm. those moms would buy a lot of different things. So music for their kids, Bible studies for themselves, maybe a Christian novel, um, and t-shirts, you know, there, there was just a ton of merchandise that, um, it's exactly what you said that the, 
Christian liturgy typically happens, you know, if you're like me and you were raised charismatic, it might go on indefinitely, but usually it's around, you know, an hour, yeah. an hour and a half. Um, and, and that's only a, a short period of time compared to what you listen to in the car when you're taking yeah. your kids, you know, around town, um, it, what you and your family watch uh, in mm -hmm. the evenings, you know, so I think you, you, uh, I think you're 100% right. And what I hope to draw people's attention to are the unofficial ways that they are formed politically and theologically, because the official structures are in duress and in many cases are um, in sharp decline. So yeah. like denominational affiliation is in sharp decline, but uh, I'm guessing, and I, am, I pretty, believe pretty strongly that there are still people who feel uh, they, they are still being formed, um, even as the institutions are are in decline. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing it all. You see it on on um, uh, on the ground level. I'd love to hear your thoughts on on just how like music and the worship world is is forming the people you're talking to. Yeah, look for for sure. It is it is the thing. And a lot of the people who end up working in our spaces travel with us. Like when we're on through 2024, we'll be out on a bus for a week or two at a time and then back home for a little bit of respite and then back out and like this. Um, a lot of the people who travel with us or that we meet, many of them have come from these conservative Christian backgrounds. And these songs are the song tracks still in their heads, even though politically, theologically, socially, they've, they've continued to grow. Those songs are still, <laughs> they're still deeply in there. Um, you know, like, a lot of the songs that you hear in informative ages, they just become a, a, a piece of your, of your mind. You, you, there's no separating it. Like you, you don't have a thought that didn't have that song <laughs> that was there at oh, the same time. Right. It's, 100%. It's, it's beautiful. That's one of the great things of, of music. It, um, so, so yes, it, it is, it is the thing. And there is not an alternative for it currently. Mm. Like that That's one of the things that, um, of every social movement, always has music with it. So people mm. talk about this regularly in movement movement theory. There's not a current music that feels like some of the social movements that many of us want to see happen in America. There aren't songs. Mm. There might be an occasional chant, but they're usually that, 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 that. Like it's not musical. Um, they're a series of statements, right? Um, so, so there's a missing piece in social movements, but not in the Christian movement. And the thing that's happened in the conservative Christian movement is that contemporary Christian music has made this pivot to worship music. Mm, um, mm -hmm. And so the best-selling songs on Spotify are Christian, uh, you know, praise music or worship music. It's That's an entire genre. There's whole radio stations. You just turn on a radio station and all it is is, you know, uh, Jesus be my lover, praise and worship music that people really like like they really really like it absolutely do you have any thoughts about that that movement when the contemporary christian movement became the praise and worship music and then the songs in there it's a lot of triumphalism it's absolutely. a lot of enemies and winning over our enemies and then you're just inserting you know your neighbor or somebody disagrees with you on social issues or politics you just slot that into the enemy category and now you've got an anthem and you're ready to you're ready to roll yeah, you know, um, I write about the the worship industry um, ascend. You know, there's two different ways of looking at it. Did it ascend, or is it what's left of 
contemporary Christian music. Um, and I think in terms of profitability, it is by far, um, it has outstripped what what we would think of as contemporary Christian music. And I define contemporary Christian music as the, the primary goal of it is entertainment. It's like a, a parallel universe of contemporary, uh, of conservative evangelical entertainment that's kind of was supposed to run side by side um, with pop culture, but usually lagged behind. Um, but, uh, it, and worship music is liturgical in function, at least in theory, a lot of people don't actually go to worship services, but they listen to worship music, um, as you mentioned. So it doesn't necessarily, you don't have to actually be there to consume it. Um, so I, worship music is, I think, the, for all intents and purposes, proof that charismatic Christianity is ascendant in evangelical spaces, because the vast majority of people who create worship hits are from charismatic or Pentecostal churches. Um, and I think that it can be used in, you know, the, the fascinating thing is, in some ways, it's ostensibly apolitical. But if you actually take the claim seriously, it's it's deeply political in the sense that it's, it is making concrete claims about the Lordship of Jesus or the kingdom of God. And you can, as you mentioned, you can apply it in a lot of different ways. One example that I use um, is a song Waymaker, um, which which has a really fascinating history. And I, I know time is short, so I won't give you the whole history, but what I'll say is that people use that on the left and the right as a protest anthem. Um, and so I think it can be used in many ways. Mm -hmm. And it's worth saying that there are plenty of charismatics and Pentecostals, particularly um, black Pentecostal and charismatic Christians who would not identify as Trumpers or, you know, there, there are people um, who dissent, um, but I will say there's no doubt that the, the conservative activist um, class of, of evangelical folks are um, energized by worship music and utilize it at almost every opportunity. Um, because it's it's what you mentioned, they understand its power. And it's fascinating to me how well some people understand it and are able to wield it and how little others don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like stunning because you can watch it, it happen. You know, um, like I was talking to somebody who was um, at a Reawaken America conference mm -hmm. and they all they use a lot of worship music um, yeah. there. And it's like, I've seen footage where it's just like a Pentecostal worship service. Um, and I was talking to the person who is not a Christian, um, who was there to observe and was like, you know, I have to say I was moved. Um, and so even, even if you're, yeah, um, exactly. you know, I've it'll get you. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It works. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's, it, it, and it's, and it's very convincing and, you know, I, like I don't fault folks for using that style of music that they, some of which they've actually helped generate like there's an entire formula and and i know those many of those people very well and you know talked for years about those formulas you know chris tomlin mm -hmm. and i know each other a long 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 time and you know <clears throat> he's working on that formula way back sure so, there are some excellent pop writers who yeah. write worship music yeah and i i I'm, I'm a bit of a guitar new guitar player and so i watch a lot of guitar uh, uh youtube channels um to learn stuff and to sort of get in the culture and Ooh, about half of it about half of it 
is church worship leader guitar stuff. Like, I swear, most people, the majority of people who play guitar in front of groups are doing it in churches. They're not doing it at open mics. They're not doing it in bars. <laughs> they are doing it in churches. And there's a lot of people that 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 whole thing has just really advanced um, and really sophisticated music, frankly, for, you know, and we're not just talking about what church music has become. But if people don't know, it's rather sophisticated and expensive equipment stuff for like, you know, that's a, right, a, a certain tremolo sound that they really want to get. And they've got a $700 pedal to make it happen for that one song where that, so it's just its own little weird, weird dive world. But if people think contemporary Christian music was just a past thing, it's just, it's new iteration. But that comment you just made, I'm fascinated by like, is it the ascendancy of it or is it just the leftovers of, of what there was? I, that's... Yeah, it's hard to say because I think there's still artists who are finding, um, there are artists who would not be considered, um, who, back in the heyday of CCM would not have charted, but are finding audiences. Um, yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with the way that we consume media, you yeah. know, so there are, it's smaller, you know, what you said about the protest anthem. Um, I mean, some of that is sort of just like, there's magic in, in creating yeah. something like that. Like, you know, who knows how, um, one of the anthems that I trace here is God's Not Dead, which has a really interesting history. Um, as well, but the the most familiar the ver the version that people might be most familiar with is by the Newsboys, and it it has been made into a film and a kind of a very very like at the center of like culture war um, yeah. stuff. And um, but that that song, just even the title, it really it lets you know a lot about what mm -hmm, it's going to mm -hmm. be about. And I think. Um, yeah, I think I think there are people who are creating music, but um, in terms of an alternative, there, you know, there, there's just this broad media landscape, you know, people yeah. listen on Spotify, on YouTube, on, mm -hmm. um, so it's harder to come up with, like, okay, everybody, here's the song, you know, it's kind of That's an right. organic process. Yeah. Um, yep. Because we don't have all this, we don't share the same media. You know, back in the day, Contemporary Christian Music Magazine was like a hub where everybody, would, yep. you know, um, and um, and we have a much more diverse country, and we have a much more diverse way of um, consuming media. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's a different world. Leah, you do a lot of other things. One of those is in two minutes you have to go to sure. teach a class of students. Uh, yes, so you just say. Whenever we have a professor that has to leave to teach a class, we want to know what are you <laughs> teaching them and how come adults oh. can't learn? How come adults can't learn what the college people get to learn? So, oh, uh, well, uh, I'm teaching a history of Christianity in America to adult learners, to seminarians. So we are um, we are talking about um, the beginnings of the great awakening. Um, uh, the so-called great awakening is a great awakening. We'll talk about that. Um, and, uh, so we're going to be talking about revivalism, which seems appropriate, um, given our, our conversation. So it should be a fun conversation. So uh, the other thing I ask a lot of professors when they teach interesting things like our astrophysicists that's on with us on Thursdays, can you Ooh, just fun. turn on the voice memo on your phone and record what you're about to teach <laughs> and then post it up somewhere so the rest of us can listen to it? Cause I promise you. <laughs> We're just doom scrolling and there's something much more interesting going oh, on. Oh, uh, come, so I, come join me in class. We have a lot of fun. <laughs> I'll send you an iPhone if you'll make a recording. Hey, okay. um, and, and speaking of podcasts in the last 30 sure. seconds, you, you have a podcast of your own? 
Yeah, so I have a couple of a religion and pop culture podcast called Weird Religion that I co-host with my friend who's a Bible scholar, and we just tackle all kinds of fun and interesting topics. Um, and then I have a one called Rock That Doesn't Roll, the story of Christian rock, which is about the fans of contemporary Christian music or mostly Christian rock, because um, CCM mm -hmm. was a lot of different genres, mm -hmm. and um, and their how their lives have been shaped by CCM. So I would welcome anybody to we listen will tell along. people about that and they can search Leah Payne spelled L-E-A-H-P-A-Y-N-E. Mm -hmm. If you're listening on just the podcast version, don't want to look below. Um, <laughs> so search in your podcast places for Leah Payne. Leah, thank you so much. I look forward to many more thank conversations you. with you and uh, all the best on the book. God Likewise. gave rock and roll to you, a history of contemporary Christian music and why it matters. In America. All right. Thank you. See ya. Bye. Bye. Trying to end the trying to end the podcast. There we go. <laughs>